Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill and Associates. I'm Suzanne Morris, filling in for Cayenne Isaacson. This week, it's 321 Go with Cosmo Macero and me, and a special Halloween-flavored interview between Hugh Drummond and Anna Maria professor Reagan Paris about what makes the music and horror movies so scary. Then Cosmo interviews the Boston Globe's Emily Sweeney about her book, Gangland Boston, a tour through the deadly streets of organized crime. And in Two Minutes with Tom, Tom talks about Vice President Biden's interview on 60 Minutes this past Sunday. First up, three, two, one, go. Let's talk about something important. Welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, we'll talk about the ongoing troubled state of community news and how big media mergers and new social media initiatives are continuing to drain local cities and towns of coverage. They're also eroding the critical role journalism plays in civic engagement. And it's Halloween. Our own Hugh Drummond talks to Anna Maria College professor Reagan Paris about what makes horror movie music scary. Finally, hundreds of Facebook employees urge founder Mark Zuckerberg to change the social platform's policies on anything goes political advertising. He's under fire from Congress, and now his workforce is piling on too. We'll break it down. Joining me here on 321 Go is Suzanne Morse. Hello. Filling in for the traveling Cayenne Isaacson. Suzanne, how are you? I'm well. How are you, Cosmo? Excellent, excellent. Great to have you with us on 321 Go, filling in. I'm happy to be here. Let's get to it. All right, Suzanne, let's talk about local community news. Uh, uh, something important to the two of us, and, and really <laughs> to, the, to the good of democracy Absolutely. in America and anywhere else, uh, and, and an informed public. Um, uh, it has been a long and steady um, decline in many communities, uh, almost all for economic reasons, of the local news model. Um, and now it's facing even more challenges between mergers and other things. Yep. Tell me about what you're thinking. Well, so what prompted this conversation was a, a number of different things, but there was an article in the Boston in Boston Magazine uh, by Chris Barone, who has been here on 321 Go, um, uh, talking about the state of um, local news. One thing I do want to point out, uh, local news is important to our business, too. Hugely important. You know, we have so many different clients who are telling stories in local communities, and it's harder to do if they're, they don't have a media outlet, a weekly or what have you, um, to tell those stories. Um, the I posted this article yesterday, and it really did engender a really lively conversation on my Twitter feed amongst a lot of different people, including a lot of people in Worcester, because uh, Chris in the article talks a little bit about Worcester and the loss of the telegram and how, you're, as you mentioned, the merger between Gatehouse and Gannett is going to create some issues. 50 local papers down yeah. to 18. Yep. Uh, a fraction of the staff. It's unbelievable. I mean, Yeah, it is. And... Um, I think that, you know, he talks a lot about the loss of oversight, you know, which is an important function of um, local newspapers. But I also think about it in terms of the loss of, like, 
the positive community stories, you know, how important it was for me as a kid, the, f the few times that I was in the local newspaper or, um, you know, uh, how there are just so many important community functions that a media outlet uh, weekly has that gets lost when there is no weekly to cover them. Not the first time, won't be the last, Suzanne, you and I are thinking exactly the same thing. I, I, I um, it, it, and Chris is right, oversight uh, and, and rooting out corruption and, and, and the like is very important Hugely at the local important. level. And, Absolutely. And, 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 that's, and, and, and that activity is just, just doesn't have yep. the watchdogs uh, looking out for it that, that, that existed in the past. But civic engagement, yep. really just a, a, an ongoing weekly civics lesson, not just for children or kids, for, for a student, the whole community. Yep. Uh, that's how, I mean, that's a critical role of, of, the, of the local newspaper, of local media of all kinds, right. not just the newspaper, uh, is keeping people engaged and aware of what's happening. Number, but, and then to your point, just kind of the the cultural yes. and social elements of growing up in any community right. and to be a small town and and you're right so many you know so many of 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 the things that make up good content are about the people in the community absolutely feature stories and local sports and and and, and kids and community programs and all of that stuff gets shortchanged as a result of where things are going um I don't want to be all gloom and doom though, because there is definitely some bright spots. Absolutely. Um, and, and and one really close, I know. near and dear to the, the Suzanne Morse experience. That's true, and you know, I know has a relationship to the Macero family. Um, so the Atlantic uh, Monthly published an article a couple of weeks ago on the Harvard Press, which is a very small weekly newspaper published in the town of Harvard, which is where I grew up and where your wife Carrie did as well. And um, it talks a little bit, actually talks quite a, a bit about how it is a labor of love for the people who put it out there. And they do it on a shoestring, but they are providing quality information. And so that is really valuable as a model. And, and then we see that there's kind of other little green shoots of hopefulness when it comes to um, you know, former journalists saying, well, we're going to put our stake in the ground and we're going to provide this community information. Um, the Provincetown Independent and the Grafton Common are two new weekly, I believe they're weekly, they're websites um, that have just launched within the couple, last couple of weeks because they know that those communities need that kind of information. Yeah. I, I think independent local media is going to be the way that, unfortunately, only some communities yeah. will address the need for local news. And, 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 and that's a great thing. Um, it, it, it's a bad thing that there's no way successful efforts can be staged in every community yeah. to cover every community. But that's really a bit of the formula. Um, that's terrific. Hey, you know, you, met, you mentioned Chris Ferron, Boston Institute of Nonprofit Journalism, Correct. and Dan yeah. Kennedy, Northeastern University. Both have been guests here. Both two of the most sort of prominent voices on the fate of community and local news. We'll have them back for sure. Yeah, and we should mention that Dan Kennedy also has a piece in WGBH News this week about Facebook news and the impact that they may have that may have on local news and, you know, also doesn't necessarily tell a great story. So that's worth checking out as well. Indeed it is, and um, probably a good topic for us in the future. Absolutely. All right, Suzanne. All right, up next, here's Hugh Drummond speaking with Anna Maria College professor Reagan Paris. Hi, it's Hugh Drummond, and I have the uh, pleasure of speaking with Reagan Paris, who is the Director of Music, Education, and Choral Activities at Anna Maria College, located in Paxton, Mass. How are you doing, Reagan? I'm wonderful. How are you? 
Great. So um, horror movies and music. What would a horror movie be without music? Well, I before I begin, I, I think it's important to say I absolutely love the Halloween season. I mean, it really does start the whole holiday season. And uh, it's there's as a father of three kids, uh, it's just engaging in all of these activities like trick-or-treating and uh, pumpkin carving. All of those are really sentimental to all of us. So it, it's it's always exciting when, uh, when Halloween comes around. And uh, again, this year is no different. I, I love going to horror films. Uh, I love going to the, the theaters to, to see the reaction of the people. I, I feel like it's almost fear is, is almost done with through osmosis. When people around you are scared and nervous, you, you can feel that tense, tenseness. And, and so much of it is tied into the musical score. So it's, it's been well documented for thousands of years how music can help alter the psyche of a person. Some films that I absolutely love the score to is The Shining. I, in The Shining, there it's one of the the best composed uh, scores of all time, and uh, for a lot of reasons. So we call uh, an interval in music, uh, we, it's just like the distance between two notes, um, but there's one uh, particular uh, distance, one particular interval called the tritone, and it was avoided. It was avoided by the church for thousands of years because they felt like it would elicit evil spirit so it was so bad that they actually called it the devil's interval um, and it was just avoided at all costs and uh, here we are uh, when the movie shining came out we were embracing it we were we were using the tritone to to, to scare people off and, and there's a, a sense of instability when you have the tritone and you have dissonant chords and it's almost uh it, it almost sneaks up on you as a as a someone who's engaging and watching a, a horror film. It, it really does sneak up on you. You have, you begin to get a little bit nervous, and if you look listen closely and you watch how the directors uh, and the the music directors of the film kind of artfully put the visual and aural component together, it just it works beautifully in some films and the shining is really uh, i think it's a standout um there are other movies that i think uh are spectacular in terms of the marriage between the music and the film itself uh, I, I do think people know jaws for instance i mean um what i like about jaws too is it's not like necessarily a halloween film but it elicits so much fear and uh, if it can go awry if you have a lesser composer that just does a poor job in really helping set the tone, then you really could have lost a, a moment, uh, an impactful moment uh, for fear. Um, but it's, it, it, it does, it's more innovative approach to creating discomfort uh, in the audience. And that uses, he uses, that composer's name again is uh, Christoph uh, Penderecki, is it? Yeah, that's and, right. And he uses untraditional instruments too, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, and the way he plays it, even the traditional instruments are so unique. Mozart, <laughs> Beethoven, Vivaldi, none of them would have used the string instruments the way Penderecki had uh, written it, uh, written the score. It's interesting, you know, when, when uh, 
people are scared in the movies, often they close their eyes. Um, another strategy is just close your, block your ears, because if you, if, if that music is uh, absent, that scene may not have the same effect. You know, I'm, I, it's interesting that you say that. I know a lot of people, and actually I have three young kids. I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and an eight-month-old. And um, if, if, you want, if you watch kids, and when kids watch The Wizard of Oz for the first time, and the witch's theme is playing, they are petrified of the theme. Like, they, they think of that song. And I've, I've done this show now. I, I've actually directed this show twice now. And, of course, it's a big show. People recognize the show, and I have a ton of kids in the audience. But it's remarkable whenever the Witch's theme song comes along, and it's, again, filled with all different arpeggios, it's amazing. Those kids are really, truly frightened. And it's not necessarily the presence of the witch, but it's the kind of the imprint of the music and the the affect that it has on the whole atmosphere. And so even though we're not there, the witch is not on stage at the moment or in the film, even though the witch is not seen at the, uh, on screen, that song that's being played really does strike a great deal of fear into, into children. Well, Reagan, I really appreciate you joining us, uh, taking uh, a break from... Uh teaching uh, music students uh, today to uh, talk about Halloween music and um, some of the features that, that go into composing. Oh, you're very welcome. I appreciate it. And then have a happy Halloween. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, Suzanne, let's talk Facebook and political advertising. Hundreds of Facebook employees I uh, have delivered a, a, a memo, a letter to Zuckerberg and other members of the uh, leadership um, expressing their concerns uh, uh, pretty, pretty bluntly yep. and then offering a series of solutions. Let me start with some of the concerns they have laid out. And, and, and this follows on. And by the way, I, I, I got to get this in. Um, this is this. Th this follows on Zuckerberg's testimony before Congress and really the dismantling of him by Representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, otherwise known as AOC. This is probably, I know there's the Green New Deal with Eddie Markey, but this is probably her single biggest, highest impact thing yeah. that she has done because it has prompted action almost immediately. Yep. Uh, and, and like major action. Yep. So I, I, anyways, okay, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to her at some other time. So a, a, a pretty uh, complete letter from the employees. We're proud to work at a place like this. Enables expression. This is our company, they write to Zuckerberg. We're worried that we're on track to undo the great strides we've made in integrity over the last two years. This is important here. Free speech and paid speech are not the same thing. Yeah. That's certainly a matter of debate, but they are ab absolutely establishing that here for their purposes. Our current po policies on fact-checking, for those uh, running for political office, are a threat to what Facebook stands for. That's strong language. Um, it allows politicians to weaponize our platform by targeting people who believe content posted by political figures is trustworthy. I think the word weaponize is about to jump the shark finally. <laughs> um, and, 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 it's, and they, they basically say that the policies of Facebook... Anything goes political advertising, right? We, I like to right. try to coin phrases here on OA On Air. <laughs> I, I, we, 
I, I might be coining a phrase, I might not. <laughs> but anyways, Kyan will tell you that I amuse myself. Okay, <laughs> um, increased distrust, um, uh, and, they, and they're saying it sends, sends, saying this, it sends a message that uh, we're okay profiting from deliberate misinformation campaigns. There's the beef. Um, so let's pause on that. And what are your thoughts on it? But then uh, th- they don't just say, so fix it. Right. They offer a, a, a pretty comprehensive formula to remedy what ails Facebook's credibility. Um, you know, what you know. immediately came to mind in terms of their laying out of their concerns here is uh, we talk about Facebook um, and to borrow a phrase from Mitt Romney, as if corporations aren't people, right? We talk about Facebook as if there aren't act- we, uh, people behind the company that are more sure. than just Mark Zuckerberg. And I was actually kind of really encouraged to see that the uh, the employees are coming forward and saying, you know, there are principles of democracy that we believe strongly in. And there are principles of integrity that you, Mark Zuckerberg, say is important for our company that we believe in. And, and we're going to defend them. Um, so, I, you know, I was proud of them for doing that. So good for them. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. It's a good observation, and it's true that, I mean, I think America experiences Facebook as, number one, this entity yeah. that they are all, that that's millions and millions and millions are involved in very a- uh, actively every day yeah. that's just there. Right. It's like the government or, you know, the world exactly. community. Exactly. That's right. Um, and then Mark Zuckerberg. Right. It's like that kid. Because they still look at him as a right. kid, and they still treat him like that, or in terms of their, how they c- talk about him. I, it always cracks me up. I get a kick out of people just blasting Mark Zuckerberg on, face- on while Facebook. On Facebook. Yeah. And blasting Facebook on Facebook. I know. It shows how much we have come to be pulled into the Facebook And how much, yeah, it's ubiquitous as part of American life. But there's a series of solutions uh, yeah. and, 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 and that they offer, which I think is really important. Yeah, and I will say, you know, in reading some of their solutions, what I was really struck by in a positive way is that there is an understanding amongst these employees that there are, um, there have been rules and um, ways of talking about political advertising in other medium, in media, media that have worked. And so, for one, for instance, they talk about the stronger visual design treatment for political ads. Well, that's an idea that's very similar to what were once was called ad watches in newspapers. After the 1988 political campaign, the Willie Horton ad, which was actually only played on the air, I believe, once. It may have been more than once. But it was replayed by... Um, television stations so often that it was reinforce, reinforcing the message of the Willie Horton ad that the Bush campaign put out. So there was a real push, particularly by those in the academic media, and I happen to know this because my uh, thesis advisor in graduate school, Kathleen Hall Jameson, did a lot of work around this to get uh, broadcasters to develop visual language so that people knew that they weren't looking at an ad when they were seeing it in a news story. Sure. And you also had newspapers start developing what they called ad watches where they, they fact-checked claims. So Facebook, the employees there are suggesting basically what's an old idea, but it's the only idea that worked in other media, and it should certainly work in Facebook. And it's also about very making it very distinct that you're looking at a political ad. Because right. the reality is, um, on Facebook especially, 
the content just blends together. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and, and stories just kind of blend together, and, and it, everything looks sort of e- kind of equally credible. Right. Um, the, the easiest way to, to, to recognize that fluidity is you'll see a story posted, and then people are reacting to it as if it happened just now. Right. And it's like three years old. I know. So, so, so the, making the distinction is really important. The other thing that I really thought was interesting <coughs> that they mentioned in the letter is uh, the, the distinctions that they make between um, sort of corporate advertising and political advertising. And, and I thought that was interesting that they say, listen, we actually do this for our corporate advertisers. So, the same way. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I thought, so we just found out literally as we were recording this that Twitter has said that they're going to ban all political advertising. I don't think either solution. I don't think Zuckerberg's solution of saying, nope, anything goes, as you have now coined it. And anything goes advertising. Everything goes advertising. I, I'm wondering if the Twitter ban, yeah. breaking news this uh, you know, this week, is really a moratorium while, while right. they sort things Perhaps. out. Um, Which would make sense. But that's not the solution either, to say no, no political no, advertising. The solution is the kinds of kind of thoughtful proposals that these employees put forward. Honestly, it's, it's, it's editorial judgment. It's editorial yep, input. It's right. fact-checking. It's the things that news organizations and, and other publications and, and entertainment networks uh, in some right. have the right people in place um, uh, uh, to apply those standards. Some, you know, they have other... Input here, spending caps for individual politicians, right. yep. uh, clearer policies, broader observance of election silence. All these things seem like uh, a package of solutions that they could put into place. I, I will say, I think the one last thing before we go is that I think that um, this speaks to Facebook trying to figure out what I, its identity is. And it's always, it's spent a lot of time trying to reject the label of a media, as being a media company. It's a media company. And this is probably something that they're going to have to accept about themselves mm. um, as they think through this advertising. I mean, the, 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 the interesting thing about Facebook is that uh, I think it's uh, clear the company has succeeded in its goal of connecting the world. True, yep. Uh, and, and we are all experiencing at the same time and realizing that in doing so, um, without uh, policies and standards in place to, to, to apply con- uh, the appropriate controls, it is absolutely the Wild West, yeah. the Wild Very East. True. It's everything and yep. anything. Um, and, and, and that's a pretty... Pretty dangerous, dangerous may not be the right word, a pretty explosive formula. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. All right. Suzanne, great talking to you. Thanks a lot. Absolutely, Cosmo. All right. That's going to do it for this week's edition of 321GO. Our program is recorded in Studio 10A, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room, at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. That's it for 321 Go. Up next, an interview with Emily Sweeney about her book, Gangland Boston. All right, up next on OA On Air, we're joined by Emily Sweeney, Boston Globe journalist and author, uh, here to talk about her book, Gangland Boston, uh, which I've read and which is really terrific. Emily, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great to have you here. Um, so I came across this book on, on, uh, on my Kindle app, uh, and it caught my eye because... Um, it looked to be um, just kind of a different look at 
crime and law enforcement in, uh, throughout the history of Boston, particularly a certain era, sort of t turn of the century, 19th, 20th century. And, 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 I, and I came across stories that, some which I had no familiarity with, and some which I was aware of, but didn't really have any depth on. Uh, and I found that fascinating. And I, I want to get into some of those anecdotes. But I guess the first thing I would ask is, how did you come about sort of the idea for this particular book and this set of, of, of really interesting stories that um, people might not always associate right away? These days, you think of Boston and true crime, you think of Whitey Bulger and, uh, and, and things related to that and some other stuff. And this is a lot different. Yeah, totally. Well, so, I mean, the premise of the book, I tried to go way back and really research, like, the beginnings and the roots of organized crime in the city. I'm a huge history buff. I'm a big fan of, well, not a fan of true crime, you know, but researching about it and uh, writing about it. And uh, that's what I, that was my goal, was to try not to concentrate on, there's been a lot of books, of, you know, written about Whitey and, you know, his era, so I tried to go beyond that and go way back to the beginning. Yeah. How did you go about assembling the different uh, uh, sort of topics or the stories that you, you thought, hey, you know what, this ought to make the book and I, and, and because I think it makes sense or it's a particular uh, interesting piece of history or, or what have you? Yeah. So, you know, I tried to pick the most interesting anecdotes. And, uh, and also I kept in mind uh, landmarks around Boston because if you walk around like the North End or in places, there are a lot of the buildings that are still there where like, you know, crazy things went down. And so that's why in the book I included like exact addresses of where like gangsters lived, where they hung out, where things happened, um, you know, so, you know, people can like look it up and, you know, see the places and a lot of them are still around today. Yeah. Um, there was... Uh it's a really remarkable chapter uh, on um, uh, Chinatown history and particularly the Tong Wars, yep. uh, a, a, as you describe, which which is really one of those pieces of Boston history um, that I really didn't have, didn't know much about, and it was fascinating. Can you talk about that a little bit and 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 just some of the anecdotes in the book? Yeah, totally. So I I wasn't aware of how big the Tong Wars were in Boston and how they were also re related to New York City. Uh, so Tongs basically is another word for, I guess, a Chinese gang, especially around the turn of the century. It actually started out, they started out as fraternal organizations of sorts, secret societies. And um, these two main groups, the Hip Sing and the On Liangs, they, you know, got into a feud and they would get into like these battles controlling over sometimes, you know, uh, vice operations, you know, gambling, wh what have you. Also revenge. And, um, you know, there was a really, really crazy shootout that happened uh, in 1907, right in uh, Oxford Place, right in Chinatown, yep. uh, where some assassins from the Hip Sing in New York came up and pretty much like shot up as many people as they could of the On Liang. Um, I believe four people died, seven people were wounded. It, it was pretty wild, a mass it, shooting. It, it was a it was it was a mass <laughs> shooting, yeah. which sadly, yeah, uh, uh, you know, America has become maybe not desensitized to, but sort of aware and 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 used to seeing these things. But at the time, it was an unbelievable uh, occurrence that you would not have seen. Oh, totally. I mean, this this happened, you know, r right in the you know, a summer day, I mean, just people, like, pulling out pistols and, like, blasting away. I mean, it was, you know, pretty crazy. Now, um, a, a very important piece of history in, in Boston, law enforcement and um, uh, 
really a sort of uh, watershed uh, moment for, for labor history is the Boston police strike of 1919, mm-hmm. which I was certainly aware of. But the, the, the toll that that took on so many families, because essentially, you know, as a result, careers were just wiped out. Yeah. Law enforcement officers, that was it. They walked out on, on the job. Uh, it, there was a lot of violence that emerged around the city, and they, and they never walked back on, right? Yeah, totally. And none of the guys that went on strike ever got their jobs back. And uh, because so many of them went on strike, you're right, they had to find new occupations. And, you know, and a couple of them found their way into crime, too. So. Yeah. And, and I, you know, it was interesting thinking about the throngs, the mobs of people at Scully Square, for instance, which, which was right up at the street here yeah. behind our offices, uh, and and the the chaos around the city, and how and how lawlessness kind of took root. Pe- uh, truck you know, truck drivers who had gotten a ticket the day before, you know, attacking police officers and getting yeah. revenge and things like that. Things you really wouldn't never imagine could happen today. Totally. It, and that's what I tried to include in the book, uh, you know, a lot of the law enforcement perspective, because sometimes in crime books it's overlooked, you know. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was a really tough job being a law enforcement officer around the turn of the century. I mean, obviously it's a hard job even now. But back then, I mean, you had people, you know, driving around in cars that, like, you know, that nobody had IDs on them, you know. <laughs> I mean, just basic things like this, you know. Sure. And, uh, you know, people weren't the best drivers either, <laughs> you know. Cars were still kind of new around the turn of the century. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a really wild time, a very tough time to be a police officer. And, and that's what there are, like, some stories of, um, you know, police officers, you know, getting attacked and, and everything in the book. I mean, because it, it happened. You, meant, you mentioned car, something that people take for granted, you know, the squad car, the, 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 uh, the, the, the typical uh, police patrol. Some years later after that, you write about the Flying Squadron, right? It's a very f- exciting name for yeah. basically uh, an early era uh, Boston police squad car. Totally. And, 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 and people were really excited, or, or, or it was a, uh, you know, a marvel of law enforcement that you had these uh, patrolmen uh, not walking a beat, but out out in, in squad cars, right? Yeah, totally. And and there were, you know, wild chases. I mean, there were people who would, you know, criminals could get away sometimes from the cops if they had a faster car. And um, also, it seemed like people shot guns, like, really, <laughs> a lot more. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to compare, you know, now and then, but uh, it seemed like, you know, people weren't afraid to shoot or shoot at the police. I mean, it's, doing the research for the for this book, I had... Uh, such a blast. It was really eye-opening, you know, to see how it was back then. I mean, it, it was it was pretty crazy. We're talking to author and Boston Globe journalist Emily Sweeney here on OA On Air. Emily, talk about um, uh, just your current beat at the Globe. You've done a lot of stuff over the years at the Boston Globe. You've been there uh, many years. It's funny, I was I was going through your, your, your profile. Uh, I, I guess you were a pioneering multimedia journalist because you were, I think, the first Globe reporter to carry a Camcorder. When's the last time you said camcorder? Yeah, that's how old <laughs> I am. <see? laughs> to carry a camcorder, um, and I know you've, you've covered a lot of beats on the South Shore downtown. Uh, right now, you're uh, you're on the beat every day. Uh, just general assignment, right? Anything and everything. Exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm writing about all types of things. Uh, I work the morning shift. And, you know, pretty much I cover a lot of breaking news. But I also do feature stories, too. And whenever I have a chance to do, like, history stories or, again, stories about crime, I always jump at those. So um, BostonOrganizedCrime.com, that's your website. That was your first 
book, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, years back, I so I, I did a lot of um, kind of you know historical research into organized crime, and I got approached by a publisher about doing a, my first book that came out around 2012, and that's like all all photos, and I, I got the photos from like state police, FBI, all different sources, but a lot of them had never been published before. Um, you know, since the book came out, a lot of them made their way under the internet, as, as you can imagine, you know what I mean? But it's, uh, so it was pretty much like a, his, like a illustrated history of organized crime, you know, in this area. Um, another anecdote in this book, you talk about the Gustin Gang, the Gustin, the Gustin Gang, the Gustin Social Club, yeah. and the connection between um, that, uh, that gang and, and Olympic boxing, yeah. which I found really fascinating. <laughs> right? you, you, you had two Olympic boxers who were also part of one of the sort of toughest, meanest uh, gangs of the time. Yeah, that, I mean, that was a complete surprise. So I'm doing, you know, I really want to make this book a definitive history of the Gustin Gang, which had never been done before. The Gustin Gang's been, like, mentioned here and there. There's been a lot of myths and legends and stories and Southie and stuff. But um, I, that was one of my goals. And so I, you know, while doing the research, I found out that, like, the leader of the Gustin Gang, he made, you know, the Olympic boxing team for, you know, for Team USA, 1920, yeah. you know? And um, uh, I got in touch with some of his descendants, and, and they weren't even aware <laughs> of it, you know? And so the Globe happened to have on file. I used to, you know, love hanging out in the old library at, on Morrissey Boulevard and just going through all the old clips and photos. But we got a photo of him um, in his Olympic boxing uniform, which is pretty crazy to think that, you know, this future gang leader, you know, you know, boxed for, you know, Team USA. It is pretty. <laughs> you wouldn't see that too often today. I know you're I know you're putting the finishing touches on another book right now. Um, tell us a little, give us a little preview of that, if that's okay. Oh, this is, book is going to be amazing. Uh, so it is a story about the life of Dropkick Murphy. Now, everybody, I'm sure, knows the band, the Dropkick Murphy. Absolutely. One of my favorite bands in the world. Sure. And they're actually, were named after a real guy. Dropkick. And Casey's been in this room right here. Oh, man. Ken's the man. He has been, yes. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, so the real guy, Dropkick Murphy, turned out to be a professional wrestler back in the 1930s. He got a start in the Great Depression. He put himself through medical school that way. And after he had a you know very successful career as a pro wrestler, and when he retired, he opened up a uh, detox center for alcoholics. Um, out in the burbs, uh, in the rural uh, part of Massachusetts. And uh, basically, I, I tried to compile all the crazy stories, you know, that happened at that detox center. And, uh, yeah, it's a pretty wild book. I mean, he, he, the guy's got an incredible life story. So That's, When does that come out? Uh, hopefully next year. Yeah, Excellent. yeah. All right, well, good luck with that. Emily Sweeney, author of Gangland Boston, available on Amazon.com. Uh, also check out BostonOrganizedCrime.com. Reader in the Boston Globe or on bostonglobe.com every day. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks to Emily for joining us. And now, Two Minutes with Tom. Two minutes with Suzanne. That's right, Tom. And the first thing is we do actually have a number of people who listen to us in the D.C. area. So well, I thought we hats would. off. Hats off That's to everybody cool. in Washington celebrating the Nationals' win last night. What a game. Absolutely. And what a weird series. No at-home wins. It's bizarre. First time in 
not only baseball history, yeah. but all major league everything history. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's just uh, it's terrific. It's a it's a great it's a great uh, it's a great day. It was a great great game last night, but a great day today to celebrate the the Washington Nationals. Yeah, Wonderful. away field advantage. <clears throat> I I was calling it. Yep. Um, so I thought we would talk a little bit about uh, Vice President Biden's interview on 60 Minutes uh, this past Sunday. You know, uh, I, I've known an awful lot of people who have been interviewed on 60 Minutes, and the advice when they come asking for it is, you're going to wish that the show's name was 60 Seconds <laughs> by the time you're done. Um, I thought I thought Biden was great. I thought yeah. Joe Biden was great. Now, I know he's been criticized in some circles, uh, but it's basically amongst the conservative media. But I, I think what he attempted to do was kind of draw attention to himself with people understanding that, that 60 Minutes is a very tough, yeah. hardened television show, uh, not for the faint of heart. That's true. So if you're being interviewed, if you're, if you're a company that's been criticized and you want no attention, the last thing in the world you want to do is be on 60 Minutes. For Biden to understand that audience, those questions – that show and what it's supposed to bring to the American television public is, is, is pretty good. So I thought the strategy worked to an audience that he cares deeply about. I agree. Uh, I think it was one of his best showings yet during this campaign. Yeah. It showed, uh, it showed some brazenness and courage. Uh, because, Absolutely. you know, as somebody who's been in the business a wee bit, let me, let me just say that you kind of watch where you, where you get interviewed because you don't want to step into a into an isolated storm, needlessly. Yeah. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I think it was part of the calculated strategy mm-hmm. to get before the older audience watching 60 Minutes to show them that he's not afraid to talk about the Ukraine, yeah. Hunter Biden, yep. or you know the impeachment proceedings going on in Washington, and that he's a Democrat, he's a moderate Democrat. His his you know his 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 core support comes from the Mid Atlantic and and the mid states of this country. Yep. And uh, he just wants to go out and get them as best he possibly can. So I thought, I thought it was a calculation that was proven. I agree. Um, so it was uh, it was nice to watch. And uh, are you actually telling me w- this is actually going to be two minutes with Tom? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be what ten minutes with Tom? <laughs> Suzanne, thanks. Thanks, Tom. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Now, don't forget to subscribe on whatever your favorite listening platform may be. You can also check us out on our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.